Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, singing, and theology in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is not my brother Alex, but my brother in Christ, Ben Robin. Ben, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for introducing me that way. Ben, you and I are in the same cohort in a PhD program at Southern Seminary, but could, and that's how we met, yep, uh, we'll right. say about a year ago. Uh, how, who are you? Tell us about yourself. My name is Ben. I'm married to Anna. We have two wonderful daughters, Phoebe and Polly. I'm currently serving Delray Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia mm. as a pastoral assistant. And what are you studying right now? Studying historical and theological studies with you. And who is your advisor? Stephen Wellam. And what are you hoping to focus on in your doctoral studies? Right now, theological anthropology, though you are constantly trying to divert my attention <laughs> to a PhD in John Newton. <laughs> Yes, and that's a great segue because John Newton is the figure we want to talk about uh, this evening. So for this talk, or in the Hymn Talk podcast, we've actually never have profiled a John Newton hymn. A travesty, if I say so. Though we have referenced his work probably about a dozen times. Uh, He's just just excellent. And uh, Alex is a huge fan of Newton. I'm a huge fan of Newton. I want to treat you like you're a resident expert on John Newton. So I'm just going to drill you about <laughs> Newton's legacy, and then we're going to discuss uh, one of Newton's most beloved hymns. Uh, so are you ready for the task? No, but let's do it. <laughs> so, uh, Ben, tell us, wh- why do Christians need to give attention to John Newton? John Newton is a, is a pastor of pastors. And by that, I mean not just that he was very pastoral with pastors, I do mean that. Mm -hmm. We'll come to that, I think, more in a minute. But I also mean he understood the nature of the Christian life, of the human heart, as he would say, under sin and under grace, Mm. in a way that I think is relatively unparalleled in the history of the church. Just Mm. a pastoral theologian of, of the greatest esteem. You would say he's an expert in theological anthropology? I think so. He actually writes in one of his letters uh, in Wise Counsel about about how many uh, Christians and theologians are taken up with their own various interests and areas of theology. Mm -hmm. But he says that his own favorite, and he says that the one that everyone should devote themselves to is the study of anatomy. This is how he talks about Mm -hmm. it. And then he says it's the study of the human heart, its workings and inner workings. And uh, I find his letters to be an exercise in that. So so we're we're jumping the gun a little bit. Can you, you in 45 seconds or a minute, Uh, Just summarize Newton's life. Sure, I can try. I know that's difficult. It is. He was born in 1725. He died in 1807. He eventually becomes an Anglican minister uh, in Olney, England, uh, for most of his life. He had two congregations. He his conversion story is one of the most fascinating. He was originally at a very young age on a slave ship, uh, trading in in humans, right, Mm -hmm. in slaves. Um, at the time, and eventually becomes a captain of a slave ship. He, you can, if you read the biographies, a lot of his story turns on which ship he was in and in what capacity. Right. And he eventually becomes a Christian and abominates the slave, the slave trade, the whole industry, mm. mm-hmm. and helps William Wilber- Wilberforce. I mean, he encourages him in his own ministry to 
to, toward abolition. Hmm. Uh, Newton was one of the most impactful voices on Wilberforce. Right, and he so, and he's kind of a, a first, sort of second generation evangelical. Yeah, coming in the wake of men like the Wesleys yes. and George Whitfield. Yeah. And is really inspired and raised up in, under their preaching. And had a pastoral friendship with Simeon, I think, right? He did. He was a bit of a mentor of of Charles Simeon, not as much as like a guy like Henry then, uh, but was definitely a, an influence in his life. Uh, later in his life, Newton was involved in the, the Clapham sect, Clapham mm-hmm. Society, mm-hmm. of which Simeon was invited. And Simeon would have been one of the few people who wasn't weren't a London minister that was involved in, in that sect. Uh, yeah, so they definitely intersected and found common cause under the evangelical banner. Now, you reference his conversion. Mm-hmm. Very dramatic. A yes. lot of fits and starts. Yep. Uh, a lot of sort of travailing within his own soul about, about his own coming to Christ. Uh, and a lot of people, I would say, are most familiar with, oh, John Newton, yeah, he was that kind of slave trader who was saved, mm-hmm. wrote Amazing Grace. And that's mm-hmm. probably what most people yeah, know about John Newton. Amazing Grace, yeah, that's right. But we're, we want to talk about kind of his pastoral theology. Can you talk about John Newton as a pastor? I think his pastoral theology comes out most in his letters. Hmm. He wrote letters uh, both to other pastors, as we've already kind of alluded to, but then also to members of his congregation, to Christians he came in contact with who were struggling in various ways. Hmm. He wrote to encourage them. He wrote specific biblical um, and Christian encouragements to them, given their specific situations. His letters um, eventually both because of his own initiative, become published in volumes like Cardiphonia is one of the more popular ones uh, that he himself published, which was a collection of his letters, um, I want to say numbering in the hundreds. Uh, Wise Counsel is another collection of his letters that's been pop, uh, published more recently, uh, Pastoral Letters to John Ryland Jr. Um, but Newton was publishing his own letters in, in newspapers, in print forms of his own day. And then mm. we've also found more of his letters and published them as well. You mentioned John Ryland Jr. Mm-hmm. I'm no Baptist history expert, but John Ryland Jr. was a prominent particular Baptist, friend of Andrew Fuller. Mm-hmm. You and I are Baptists. <laughs> that's right. John Newton was an Anglican. Yeah, that's right. And we're talking about the late 1700s. Why was it that John Newton had an interest in ministers outside of his own denomination Mm -hmm. and outside of the state church of England? Newton, to me, is a great example of being ecumenical in the best kind of way. I think... Wait, wait. What's the worst kind of way? (laughs) I was just about to say, you and I would be familiar, Zach, with bad kinds of ecumenical. Uh Um, So think interfaith dialogues, Mm. like Christians and Muslims talking Mm. about how they both try to follow God in some sort of... As if they're on the same page. Yeah, as if they follow the same God or something, something like that, which would just be beyond the pale of acceptable. That's one end of the spectrum. Yeah. Another would be... Yeah, another would be, like in our day, the kind of together for the gospel ecumenical, which Mm -hmm. I think is very much in the spirit of John Newton. So they would say doctrinal maximalism. They're not downplaying their differences. They're actually upplaying them, Mm -hmm. but they're also upplaying all the doctrine that they have in common. So Mm -hmm. penal substitutionary atonement, Mm -hmm. the inerrancy of scripture, these very foundational and important beliefs that we hold together Mm -hmm. as Christians, evangelical Christians. So Newton is able to kind of shake hands over low fences, Mm -hmm. to use a modern... Modern, yeah, more modern way of looking at what, it. One of my favorite anecdotes about Newton's life, I think this just gives you such a, a picture of what type of ministry he was, is his first uh, a pastorate in Olney. Um, 
he which small town and he's the the local pastor there in the at the anglican church there's there's also a baptist church that's uh pastored by john sutcliffe Mm -hmm. and this is in the late 1700s and john newton and and sutcliffe would go on walks together Mm -hmm. and they and newton would have his arm around sutcliffe as they walked Mm -hmm. almost like a public gesture of we are on we are together for the gospel right, kind right. of before together the gospel in our day, <laughs> right, day right. and age but but that would have been not unheard of but just so uncommon yeah. in uh that era of nonconformity. well and i think newton took particular delight in not being a party man hmm. in being a man who understood brothers in christ to be what they are even across denominational and tra- sort of Christian tradition lines, whether they be Baptist or Anglican like him, he was eager to celebrate and help any Christian minister uh, who was honestly preaching the gospel, like, mm. like the men we've mentioned. You mentioned Newton's letters, uh, his letters to John Ryland. Is, mm-hmm. is that what Wise Counsel is? Yeah, so Wise Counsel is a book published by Banner of Truth recently, the last couple of decades. Uh, these letters to Ryland Jr. had been discovered after they had put out the multi-volume completed works of John Newton. Oh. So they're actually most of them not in the, mm. the complete works. If you mm-hmm. have the originally six volumes by Banner, now four volumes, um, the new edition came out a couple of years ago. But these letters in Wise Council are all to John Ryland Jr., a young Baptist preacher who was sort of starting out in the ministry. Newton is probably in his 60s or so when he's writing. It's over a somewhat long period of time from the first to the 83rd letter. There's 83 in there. And I've described it to people as one of the most helpful books you can read on pastoral ministry Hmm. because as a young Baptist preacher myself, uh, it's basically everything you want an old pastor to tell you Mm, mm -hmm. as you're starting out. Mm Mm-hmm. So part of your role, Ben, at Del Rey is you kind of help shape the internship mm-hmm. at your church. Mm-hmm. You each year have, what, five or six interns mm-hmm. um, yeah. coming, coming through, through your church. And uh, you've sort of shaped the curriculum for that. Do you have them read Newton? We do. We actually had them read Select Letters, which is a smaller volume by Banner, which would be more in the style of Cardiphonia mm-hmm. um, back in Newton's day, but it was far fewer letters, 31 letters, I think, something like that. Uh, we just this year added wise counsel instead of select letters, mm-hmm. uh, which is an initiative I started <laughs> because it's just such a helpful book um, for pastors specifically. And that's what we're trying to do with the internship is train pastors. Well, so as you're doing that, and you, I, I trust you have men coming from different church backgrounds, some mm-hmm. from very healthy churches, maybe some from different denominational backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you seen young men prepared for ministry, preparing for ministry, how, how do they respond to Newton? Well, I can tell you how I responded to him. <laughs> because I met John Newton, so to speak, in the internship mm. just a couple of years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm new to Newton, relatively speaking. Um, and Newton was for me, and I think this is representative of our interns. I think he was this way for Garrett, our senior pastor. Um, Newton was for me just a great picture of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. In his character, I mean. Hmm. Obviously, he's not Jesus, mm-hmm. but he looks a lot like Jesus. Hmm. And that helps me to love Jesus. He demonstrates a love for the Lord in right. his own writing that's very evident. But I think in particular, the, the sort of flavor or tincture of Newton, hmm. the person, the writing, it's this combination of courage or conviction and compassion. Hmm. It's this combination. John Piper says he's tough and tender. Yes, and yes. that he has 
uh, tough roots of his habitual tenderness. That's the title Piper gave to his biography of Newton, which is which is great and worth listening to. But I think it's difficult to find, both in our day and in the history of the church, I think, someone who has equal parts truth and grace, someone who has equal parts courage and compassion. Mm. I think it's very easy, especially when you're young, I think like us, mm-hmm. to to be great in conviction, mm. which is a good thing. I don't mm-hmm. want to denigrate that. But I think that can sometimes not come with equal parts compassion. Right. Uh, I think, and you're you're saying it's not like, hey, choose your adventure, whether you want to be a gentle no, pastor no, no, no. or a tough pastor. No. You're saying Newton kind of shows us how to marry those two, right? Right. Yeah. And I actually don't think they they should be pitted against each other. Right. I hope I haven't given that impression. But uh, I think the Lord Jesus is perfect in both, mm. and so we ought to be. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I, I find myself. I mean, I, I'm doing doctoral studies in Charles Simeon. Uh, I'm so compelled and drawn to evangelical Anglicans. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they open up new vistas for me and uh, uh, things about theology that I didn't know before. They just make me love the plain things, the mm-hmm. plain gospel truths. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're talking about John Newton, Charles Simeon, J.C. Mm-hmm. Ryle, Henry mm-hmm. Venn, I mean, these men, these brothers will help you appreciate the gospel in all its brilliance, mm-hmm. and and I just uh, I I cannot commend these brothers enough. Ben, some people might be familiar with with John New- Newton's curate William Cooper, mm-hmm. who was in his parish at Olney, a uh, man he had a long relationship with. Can you tell us about who William Cooper was and what John Newton's relationship with him was like? So Cooper and Newton. And it's Cooper. It's spelled Cowper. That's right. It's pronounced Cooper, I believe. <clears throat> That's right. Cooper and Newton were brothers in the Lord. Eventually, would write hymns together. Spent a lot of time together. Cooper, sort of infamously, struggled with dep- what we would call depression. I don't think they would have spoken about it that way then. But what we would call depression, um, fits of anxiety, so severe that he would attempt suicide multiple times. Um, there are stories of Newton holding Cooper so that he wouldn't bleed out. Mm. Their relationship was that had that character to it. Um, in fact, Alex on Twitter the other day just posted a, an excellent thread about the importance of pastoral friendships mm-hmm. from the story of Newton and Cooper, mm-hmm. that story in particular, um, about them buying a field in Olney so they Olney so they could uh, so they could see each other faster. Yeah, yeah. If you if you ever go to Olney, I was there a couple of years ago. You uh, there's Newton's house and there's there's uh, Cooper's house, mm-hmm. and in order for Newton to be able to get to Cooper Cooper's house uh, more quickly, he purchased the right. Uh, he, he basically needed to trespass through a yard, right? And the owner of that yard, he would give him a guinea a year mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to let that let him walk through his yards just so he can get to Cooper's more quickly instead of going around the block. Yeah. And when someone is harming themselves, it's yeah. important that you get there quickly. Mm-hmm. And that was that was Newton's case. Mm-hmm. Particular. What do you think there's for pastors to learn from that, that relationship? Oh, I think the kind of pastoral sensitivity and care for people, for individual real people, uh, that you really, you can read about, but you really need to see embodied. Mm-hmm. And I think Newton embodied it. I think the kind of perseverance that's necessary, mm. the endurance that's needed for pastoral ministry, um, We've had some interns read 
uh, of Newton and hear that story uh, because Piper tells it in, in both the biography of, of Newton and of Cooper. Right. And I think there is a kind of, a kind of quick, maybe Calvinic, Calvinist sounding answer that, oh, Newton spent too much time on Cooper. You know, yeah. he was, he was just unregenerate. Newton really needed to move on and spend his time elsewhere. I just think the pastoral heart of Newton compelled him to do what he did. And that's one of the things I love about him. Hmm. Mm, amen. You know, we're talking about Newton and Cooper. Uh, Newton and Cooper serve as probably one of the, the uh, foremost inspiration of this podcast because those two brothers were, were pioneers in congregational singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, hymns as we're familiar with them today mm-hmm. uh, were not popularized until the early 1700s with Isaac Watts. And I think they really hit their golden age. Uh, in in Newton's ear, uh, Newton's years in the late 1700s, and what I love about Newton and Cooper, and I think they write about this in their preface to Only Hymns, is uh, they they talk about how songs need to have at least three elements. And at Emmanuel Church, we talk about these all the time, mm. and that's that songs need to be uh, uh, biblically informed. Uh, their content needs to be shaped by the Bible. They need to be pre- presenting scriptural content. Uh, They need to be congregational, meaning designed for uh, a choir of untrained voices that is the congregation. Mm -hmm. So if singing is truly as Ephesians uh, uh, 5 and Colossians 3 teach that it is for the equipping of saints and everybody's to play a part, well, then the songs need to be singable. So they believe songs need to be scriptural, they need to be congregational, and then lastly, they need to be edifying. That is to say, and kind of a moving target, kind of subjective, but that the songs need to be, uh, they should be tunes that people like to sing. Yeah. And I just, as we found those sort of three tenets to be just so useful in sort of creating a culture of congregational singing. Yeah. Do, do you mind if I share a couple of lines mm-hmm. of Newton and Cooper? Yeah. Just, it might illustrate well what you were just talking about. I yes. Think, I think these are just some of my, my favorites. There's dozens of maybe even hundreds of wonderful Newton lines. But uh, I'll start with, there's a song by Newton called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder that we Mm, sing mm -hmm. at our church. And verse four uh, goes like this. He says, let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store, when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Mm. And there's a great Cooper Uh, chorus as well. This is in a song called Love Constraining to Obedience. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Mm, So rich. They have this ability to turn a phrase like that, Mm. that packs in so much good theology and makes it memorable and meaningful to your life. Mm. That when you sing it, it just does something to you. <laughs> yes. Well, so real quickly, Ben, what are the best ways either pastors or lay people can uh, introduce themselves or be exposed to John Newton? Yeah, if you can't just read his letters, I think mm-hmm. one of the best places to start is Cardiphonia, which mm-hmm. you can find many. I mean, you could go on the internet and Google it and find it for free if you just want to read uh, online or in PDF or something. You can get bound copies of that off Amazon. Um, That's partly his biography? Cardiphonia his autobiography? is his letters his to letters. mostly his oh, okay. congregants. There will be some other you know, partner ministers or, or, or things like that. Um, 
some officials, but he bound up this com- several combinations of letters in Cardiphonia and published it himself when he was alive. It's still, you know, in print in various forms today. Wise Counsel is another great one if you're pastoring or training to pastor. Um, Select Letters by Banner is a good one. If you don't want to dive straight into the letters, um, Tony Ranke's volume, Newton mm. on the Christian Life, mm-hmm. is an excellent introduction to Newton. If you just want something short, I think it's like 200 pages, so not super long, and very accessible. And yeah. Ranke gives you kind of Newton's whole theology of the Christian life, mm. which I think is just a great introduction to how to pastor people. Mm-hmm. Well, I want us to take a few minutes to talk about uh, a John Newton hymn. So we'll do a few minutes to talk about I asked the Lord that I might grow. This hymn is a hymn that I grew up singing in my Blue Trinity hymnal. And uh, it seems like, I don't know if it, it's gone through a bit of a resurgence recently, but I know more and more people that are at least familiar with it. Uh, ben, what is the theme of this hymn, I Ask the Lord? I think the theme is the counterintuitive nature of Christian growth. Hmm. You're going to need to unpack that. (laughs) I think that the thing that the Lord delights to use to make us more like His Son, to make us more like Christ, to grow us in Christ-likeness and in Christian character, is suffering. It's Hmm. trials and temptations. It's endurance and steadfastness over a long period of time. The scriptures are replete with commands like this. James chapter 1, I think of, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that they are that which produce steadfastness, right? Hmm. Yeah, and the, and the hymn, uh, the narrative of it is this Christian uh, recounting his own experience of wanting deeper growth and fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and God's own dealings with him to, to uh, fashion him into his likeness. Right. And uh, so it, it kind of changes voices throughout the hymn, where mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's the author speaking, sometimes it's his words to the Lord, and sometimes it's the Lord's to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am helped by the last verse, where where uh, this is God speaking to the the uh, the Christian. He's saying these inward trials. I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. So Ben, I thought I have had yeah. uh, singing this in, in congregations before is I just wonder yeah. how appropriate if we are called to encourage one another, mm-hmm. uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly within us as we encourage one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that there, there is to be such a horizontal element to singing, yep. is it appropriate to sing such a personal song about such a uh, unique experience with God that maybe not every believer goes through and maybe not every believer ought to go through? Mm. Push back on that. What do you think? Why, why should believers be singing I Ask the Lord on a Sunday morning? <laughs> well, I don't feel that you're in sin if you don't sing this song. Oh. <sighs> I do think that you're impoverishing yourself greatly. Whoa! <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but but I, I would submit it for consideration. It, it expresses, I think, an inescapable nature of the Christian life. That even though, to your point, not every Christian, it's certainly not where we are and when we are. Not every Christian faces the kind of suffering and trial and even persecution that all the other Christians have, right? You just look at the first few centuries of the church, even the persecution that was going on in the time the Bible was written, 
I've never faced anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been mocked for being a Christian. Mm-hmm. I've been laughed at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't even been spit on. I certainly haven't been beaten. You know, um, I haven't been crucified. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't expect to be. I do think that there is a kind of ordinary suffering of life. Say it's raising kids. Say it's losing friends. Say it's struggling with your own identity, mm-hmm. which for us just gets wrapped up in so many of the wrong things so often, that I think the Lord uses to not just cause us to persevere in faith, but to cause us to grow in likeness. And I think this song is expressing that reality, which I think every Christian knows in some measure. So I think you're right. This expresses it in a more stark way that maybe may feel unnatural, unfamiliar to some Christians, especially Mm -hmm. those that are young Christians. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised if the oldest among us, the oldest saints among us, the oldest in the faith among Mm us, could sympathize very much with this song, even the way it's expressed. Mm. I think I can sympathize with it Mm. in a large part. Well, as for singing this song, there are several tunes out there uh, available. It is in long meter. Uh, I don't know the tune, the name of the tune that Ben and I are most familiar with, and we certainly are not going to sing it for you right now, but I will (laughs) include the tune in the show notes below when you pull up this episode. There is a, a, what I think to be an excellent uh, tune put out by Indelible Grace, not quite great for congregational singing, but Mm -hmm. great for your own edification, so I encourage you to check that out. I believe Emily DeLoach sings that. Uh, But Ben, do you have any other thoughts on this hymn or John Newton? One of the things I love thinking about is, and I think particularly for this podcast, is matching not just the words and the notes, but the tone of the song. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if you compare the the two versions, the one that Sovereign Grace does and the one that Indelible Grace does, Mm -hmm. it will help you to think through, is the melody matching the lyrics? Does the tone of the text feel like the tone of the song? Mm. And it ought to. I think, in in as much as we're able. And this is a great song to really think through that issue in particular. Well, with that, we are out of time. Ben, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me.